I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the new two-minute rule, this the week's oral arguments, and Elizabeth interviews Justice Gorsuch's former clerks and book contributors. Before we get into all of that, I want to mention we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. So show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. You can get them at shop.heritage.org. And listeners, we are offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You want to enter four bananas, that's all one word, the number four, and bananas, lowercase, at checkout to get your discount. Now on to the show. That still cracks me up. (laughs) We talked a lot about four bananas last year. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go back and listen to all our previous episodes. Exactly. Well, the the court is back in session and unveiled a new rule. They are allowing advocates to speak for two whole minutes before any of the justices are purportedly allowed to ask questions. So this week was uh, the the first week of argument, and the justices were trying out their new rule. Yeah, it's kind of unheard of because usually it's SCOTUS cases. You know, the justices jump right in with questions right off the bat. Um, and I called it from day one that Justice Sotomayor would break this rule on the first day because she's notorious for jumping in and asking the first question. And it was right when my co-clerks was there for a case and I was asking him, him about it. And he said Sotomayor jumped in and then she apologized. She caught herself and, you know, said whoops and they kept going. <laughs> but I learned that a few courts allow you to reserve some time, but it's not super common. And usually it's just a couple minutes here and there. But on the Fifth Circuit, where I clerked for an en banc case, you could reserve 15 minutes, which is insane. That's too much time. Um, A couple people did it my term, and just don't do it, advocates. Don't do it. It was never a good idea. I was talking with someone recently, and they said, reserving 15 minutes is the oral argument equivalent uh, of raising eight questions presented in a cert petition, which I think is so (laughs) true. Like, that's always a disaster. Just don't do that. Yeah. You want like one or two questions, uh, questions presented in your cert petition. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine, you know, oral arguments for the justices to ask their questions. And yeah, it's nice if you can actually have time to answer them. But if you're just going to stand up there and give a speech, that's not useful to anyone. So when Chief Justice Roberts gaveled in the new session for the October term 2019, he noted a few milestones. Justice Stephen Breyer is celebrating his 25th anniversary on the court as of this past August. The Chief Justice also gave a touching tribute to John Paul Stevens, a retired justice of the Supreme Court who passed away over the summer. But the big question on Monday of this week was, where is Clarence Thomas? He was not at the court, and the chief justice opened the session by mentioning that Thomas was indisposed, but that he would still be participating in the cases that the justices heard that day. He would just read the briefs and the transcript from the argument. Well, the public information office quickly put out uh, information informing the public that Justice Thomas simply had the flu, uh, so nothing to be terribly concerned yeah, about. Didn't they say like flu-like symptoms. Like, they couldn't just straight up say the flu. What a bunch of lawyers. <laughs> Moving on to uh, what's been happening in the last couple of days at the court. The court on Friday of last week, so just after we released our first episode of the season, the court issued its first grants list of the new term. Yeah, and it was a super short list coming out of the long conference. 
only three cases. So there's probably a, um, a lot more coming relatively soon. And I saw that a bunch of cases were relisted per John Elwood's relist watch. So we'll see about some of those and some of the ones we've talked about before. Um, so the first grant was U.S. Forest Service versus Cow Pasture River Preservation Association. And this case is about the Appalachian Trail. So the Secretary of the Interior administers the Appalachian Trail, which is about um, 2,000 miles stretches from Maine to Georgia. And about half of the trail crosses through land with national forest. So there's some overlap in agencies and who can do different things um, in what areas. And this case is about a natural gas pipeline that FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, I that sounds that's right, what it stands for, um, authorized this pipeline, but it was going to go have to go under a small portion of the trail, so like 600 feet underground over like a tenth of a mile or something like that. Um, and so the Forest Service tried to grant a right of way to make this happen. It was challenged, and then the Fourth Circuit held that the Forest Service did not have the statutory authority to grant that right-of-way. Um, so the question the court's going to decide is whether the Forest Service has authority under the Mineral Leasing Act um, to grant right-of-ways through parts of the Appalachian Trail that go through national forests. And then next up is United States versus, I'm going to slaughter this name, Sinningen Smith. Sounds good to me. But there's a federal law that makes it a crime to encourage or induce illegal immigration for commercial advantage or private financial gain. And this woman in California was convicted under the statute for basically tricking aliens who were unlawfully present in the United States into believing that she could help them get permanent resident status if they hired her. The Ninth Circuit threw out her conviction and struck down the statute holding that it was unconstitutionally overbroad under the First Amendment, because, of course, they did. Um, <laughs> and the government, you know, is arguing that this isn't really about speech. It's about conduct, and there's, like, a very small sliver of speech it would prohibit and not as broadly as the Ninth Circuit thinks. The final case that the court took up is one that we talked about on our last episode, June Medical Services versus Gee. This is the challenge to Louisiana's requirement that physicians who perform abortions have admitting privileges at a local hospital. No surprise here that the justices took up this case after a majority issued a stay of the lower court ruling, uh, which would have allowed the state law to go into effect. So the Supreme Court issued that stay, which is kind of an extraordinary action. They don't do that all that often, which kept the law from going into effect while the challengers um, filed their cert petition. So an interesting note on this case, there was a second petition that the court granted um, brought by the state of Louisiana. And this is asking whether abortion providers can be presumed to have third party standing to challenge these regulations uh, I- instead of um, having patients who would need to to challenge them directly. So that will be definitely one to watch. So moving on to arguments this week, First up, the first argument was Kaler versus Kansas. Yeah, and we talked about this case um, last week. It's whether the 8th and 14th Amendments permit a state to abolish the insanity defense. Um, We talked about how a handful of states have gotten rid of insanity as an affirmative defense and allowed um, criminal defendants instead to introduce evidence that they had a mental disease or defect and that they couldn't form the requisite intent to commit the crime 
because of that mental disease or defect. So this is the case where the grandmother's life alert system got recorded. I guess her granddaughter's husband killing her, the granddaughter, and her two daughters. So very sad. There were a lot of questions from the justices. It was a very hot bench. They looked pretty closely divided, and a lot of them were worried um, on both sides about how to address this question going forward. Moving on to the Ramos versus Louisiana, this was a rare afternoon argument session. Uh, The justices heard this case. This was uh, the case involving whether the Sixth Amendment unanimous jury requirement applies to the states. So this was argued for the challenger for the criminal defendant uh, by Jeffrey Fisher of Stanford and for the state of Louisiana by Liz Merle, who is the solicitor general. So only one state currently allows non-unanimous jury verdicts in non-capital felony cases, and that's Oregon. Um, Louisiana used to, but changed its law back in 2018. So the case comes from Louisiana because it's defending the validity of its earlier system. So what were some of the issues that came up at the argument? Uh, The the biggest one was stare decisis. Uh, The court would need to overrule a 1972 decision called Apodaca versus Oregon. This was a plurality opinion finding that the Sixth Amendment requires unanimous juries, but that it only applied to the federal government. It was a fractured opinion where you had a 4-1-4 split. So four justices said the Sixth Amendment doesn't require unanimity at all. Four said it applies uh, it, it does require unanimity of jur- in juries, and it applies to both the federal and state government. And then Justice Powell was in the center, and he wrote the controlling opinion saying that uh, unanimity is required, but only for the federal government. So Justice Alito made a point early on. He said last term, the majority was lectured pretty sternly in a couple of dissents about the importance of stare decisis and about the impropriety of overruling established rules. Of course, he was throwing a little bit of shade at Elena Kagan and Stephen Mm -hmm. Breyer, who wrote very forceful dissents in a a handful of cases last term when the court overruled longstanding precedents. Justice Kagan, ever the cheerleader for stare decisis, said, you know, we can tolerate a pretty significant degree of diversity in state criminal procedure, so maybe the court shouldn't be too concerned about the issue here. And then Justice Kavanaugh mentioned a couple of reasons in, in his mind for overruling the Apodaca case. He said, look, the, the Louisiana rule, the non-unanimous jury rule, was born of racial animus. It was put into the Louisiana Constitution along with a number of Jim Crow laws. And so it's born of racial animus. And then also that it's unfair. So this led into a discussion of a parade of horribles for either side. So ruling for the petitioner for Ramos here, Justice Alito asked, you know, would this lead to thousands of inmates then challenging their convictions, inmates from Oregon and Louisiana? And would the court have to apply it retroactively? Uh, Justice Gorsuch suggested that this might actually cut against the state because he wasn't sure that uh, the court should enshrine an erroneous view of the Sixth Amendment into the Constitution simply because there were a number of convictions that, that might ultimately be overturned. Extending the parade of horribles to a possibility of ruling for the state, Justice Sotomayor wanted to know if other foundational aspects of the jury could potentially be up for reconsideration if they if they sided with the state. Would um, requiring guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, would that be on the table? Would having a requirement that a jury reflect a cross-section of the community, would that be something that might be on the chopping block? 
And finally, would the unanimity requirement for juries in federal trials, would that also be on the table? So there was a lot lot of questions that the justices had. Um, They also asked about, you know, what about the fact that the court has held previously that um, a six-person jury is sufficient? And Justice – I think it was Justice Ginsburg said, if six is enough, what's wrong with with 10 out of 12? If six minds are enough, why not 10? Uh, And and Jeffrey Fisher for the petitioner said that unanimity promotes an effective deliberation towards an accurate decision and a cross-section of the community. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts – pressed Louisiana, uh, the SG, on how far a state could depart from unanimity. Would a jury verdict that's 7-5 be okay? And she said that the the court has given guidelines on this in other cases and that, for example, in the Apodaca decision, the jury verdict had been 9-3. So Louisiana, the old law, allowed for a jury of 10 out of 12. So in her mind, that was good enough. Uh, a couple of times, the fact that the court incorporated part of the Eighth Amendment last term came up. Um, that didn't seem to be uh, dispositive for for either side, though. But overall, it seemed like the justices were were sort of leaning towards the the petitioner's side uh, in, in favor of incorporating this this requirement against the states. Turning to uh, the second day of argument this week, the court heard the consolidated Title VII cases. So these are the two cases asking whether um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, its prohibition on sex discrimination in employment includes sexual orientation. And then there was a third case asking if sex discrimination includes uh, gender identity. So it was a packed courthouse. People began lining up the Friday before uh, this Tuesday morning argument for for public seating. And inside the courtroom was just as busy with five lawyers appearing in in the two oral arguments. Uh, So Pam Carlin of Stanford represented the the gay employees in the first two cases. Jeff Harris of Tiffany's firm and a former law clerk to Chief Justice Roberts. He represented the employers from the first argument. David Cole of the ACLU represented the the transgendered individual. And John Bursch of Alliance Defending Freedom represented the business in the the gender identity case. And then, of course, Solicitor General Noel Francisco had divided argument time shared with the employers in both arguments. So right off the bat, Justice Ginsburg wanted to know – um, you know, she brought up the fact that it was clear that what Congress said in 1964 uh, was pretty clear, that they could not have envisioned. It wouldn't have been in their minds that sex discrimination meant uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. You know, and she pointed to the fact that at that time, homosexual behavior was criminalized in a number of states and and that it was also um, considered a mental disorder. And so the attorney, Pam Carlin, for for the gay employees in, in the first argument said, you know, we don't look at what Congress would have thought at the time. We look at the plain text. Um, Chief Justice Roberts jumped in and said, well, there are all of these states that subsequently passed laws adding gender identity and sexual orientation as protected classes. So why would that be necessary if sex already covered those? Uh, This was also something that Justice Alito asked about several times, um, bringing up the fact that Congress has amended other civil rights statutes to include additional protected classes and that Congress has considered uh, ENDA and the Equality Act for a number of years that that would do the very thing that the employees seek in this case. Uh, So that seemed to be sort of a a common theme throughout the two arguments was 
the justices seeming to ask, are we even the right branch of government to decide this issue? Uh, Justice Sotomayor on that point said, you know, at what point do we allow invidious discrimination to continue before we act? And she seemed in favor uh, of, of the court acting now. There was one one moment of levity. Uh, Pam Carlin mentioned uh, as an example that it's not discriminatory for the chief justice or the other justices to refer to her as Ms. Carlin and to refer to Jeff Harris, um, her uh, opposing counsel, as Mr. Harris. And so when when Jeff got up to the lectern to begin his argument, Chief Justice Roberts you know, introduced him and said counsel instead of Mr. Harris. And uh, advocates typically begin by saying, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And Jeff really emphasized he dug into the Mr. Chief Justice, which elicited laughter in the courtroom. And the chief uh, then said, touche. Um, another sort of uh, interesting point throughout the two arguments, the justices asked a lot of questions uh, about single-sex bathrooms. And it, it almost seemed like they were fixated on the bathrooms. And I was in the lawyer's lounge. I didn't make it into the courtroom uh, because it was uh, very, very packed. But I heard one of the lawyers around me say, do the justices think that transgender people just spend their entire time in the bathroom? Why are they obsessed with the bathrooms? Uh, so I thought that was kind of amusing. Um and one final uh, exchange that I want to mention before we move on, Justice Alito brought up um, a hypothetical of basically a blind resume review process. So he says, say you are hiring for a position and you get a resume for someone and it's not readily apparent if they're male or female from the resume, but you can tell their sexual orientation and you decide not to hire them. Is that sex discrimination or is it sexual orientation discrimination because they don't know the the sex of, of the person that's hiring? And this kind of tripped up the uh, the lawyer, Pam Carlin, for for the employees. And she said, what is this? a Is this an it's Pat situation? And, and Justice Alito said, I, I don't get the reference. And she said, oh, it's an SNL thing. And yeah, for anyone who who wasn't uh, watching SNL in the early 90s, it was. This character that you couldn't tell if Pat was a man or a woman. So it was kind of a funny point. But anyway, you know, anyone uh, who who hoped for some clarity and a clear picture of where the justices may be going in this case, um, who hoped for that coming out of the argument, uh, it, it seemed like they were really wrestling with this case and with what cases would be coming down down the pipeline if they rule for the employees. Uh, and so they, they really seem to struggle with that. Uh, so I'm sure this will be one that we won't get for a while, um, maybe not even till the end of June. But uh, we'll see what happens with this ruling. Anyway, moving on, I recently spoke with Janie Nitza and David Fetter. Jane Nitza and David Fetter served as law clerks to Neil Gorsuch at the Tenth Circuit and the Supreme Court. And they are contributors to the justice's new book, A Republic, If You Can Keep It. Jane and David, welcome to SCOTUS 101. So just to start out, tell me about how the idea for this book came about. So during the confirmation process, we saw many people talk about judges as if they were just politicians in robes deciding cases because they favored X party or they disliked Y party or things like that, which is not how judges operate and is not how judges should operate under our Constitution. And we also saw people who sort of misrepresented originalism and textualism or the judge's opinions and speeches and his record on the Tenth Circuit. And we wanted to sort of explain what originalism and textualism was so that 
the non-lawyer could understand, or maybe even the lawyer who knew a little bit about constitutional interpretation but wanted to know more. Um, and we wanted to explain how originalism, textualism, our value-neutral methodology. It's not a way of getting political results in one direction or another. Um, and we wanted to just provide the judge's cases and speeches so you can sort of hear all this uh, from his mouth himself and show people what his actual views and record is. And then we also just wanted to inspire people to help participate in our republic and, and keep it for generations to come. You know, he cares deeply about our country and our republic, and he knows that liberty is only ever one generation from extinction. Uh, so he's made civics education and civility uh, the centerpiece, probably, of his extrajudicial speeches as a Supreme Court justice, but also as a Tenth Circuit judge. And so those are things that he talked about a lot in the book. The only thing, other thing I was going to add is that I know he's spoken often about you know, how he had just gone through this confirmation process for the high court. It was an incredibly public process. And, and, and throughout, he interacted with all sorts of people. So senators, members of the public, family, friends. And, and I know he said that, you know, one thing throughout really struck him, which was just seeing really the fundamental generosity and goodness of the American people. And so he speaks in the book and, and publicly of how folks would come up to him, you know, in like a coffee and say, you know, I didn't vote for this president, but I wish you well. Or, or tap him on the shoulder in public and say, you know, would you like to hear a joke? Um, so not to be too corny about it, but I think the <laughs> process touched him and he had a renewed appreciation for the admirable parts of our republic and, and, and democracy and sort of the people of this country. So as you mentioned, many of Justice Gorsuch's speeches touch on the importance of civility. And in his tribute to his former boss, Justice Kennedy, he talks about how Kennedy wouldn't hesitate to disagree with colleagues, uh, but he would never do it disagreeably. Given your experience clerking for Justice Gorsuch, is this something he he likewise tries to instill in his clerks? Absolutely. I think we've heard each heard that line multiple, multiple, multiple times. <laughs> I, I think there's a few angles to um, to this question in, in, in how clerks work with him. Um, one, of course, is just working with him to shape the opinions that he wants. Um, every word he writes is, is or every word that comes out in opinion is a word he writes. Um, and I, I remember back in the day when I was clicking for him on the 10th Circuit. So this was his third year on the bench. And I drafted a pretty sharp dissent in the case. And, and I recall very vividly how he called me back into his office and, and very kindly and gently reminded him that he's perfectly happy to disagree with his colleagues, but but he seeks to do so in an objective and agreeable way. And, and that lesson has definitely stayed with me as I move on to my own work and have my own colleagues with whom I might disagree with. And then I would say that apart from drafting opinions, you know, there's the fact that as a clerk, you have co-clerks in your chambers and then sort of scattered across the court that you need to work with agreeably. And he always instilled in us a, a, a pretty deep desire that he wanted us as a chambers to reflect the values that he believes in and that he, he speaks of in the book. Yeah, I think Justice Gorsuch, you know, he also really lives this. One of my favorite little fun stories in the book is during the confirmation process, uh, during the confirmation hearing, I guess he was looking pretty thin on TV. So some of his colleagues from the 10th Circuit sent him a fruit basket and wrote him a note and said, you know, uh, we, we wish you all the best from your Obama-appointed colleagues. <laughs> and I think that's just because, you know, he really he really cares about his colleagues, and, and even if he might not agree on every case with them, he still treats them with respect, and, and they did as well. And, you know, the 10th Circuit is probably the most collegial court in the country, and, and that's a good example of that. 
So the book contains excerpts from several of Justice Gorsuch's judicial opinions. He's written hundreds of opinions from his time on the appeals court as well. So how did you all decide which ones to feature in the book? Early on, sort of, I, I, I had the, the task, which ended up being quite agreeable, of reviewing sort of binders and binders and binders of materials sort of, of the justice, basically the great chunk of what he had written over the last really decade or more. And it spanned a range of materials from opinions to speeches, academic articles, tributes to former mentors. And I think one thing above all struck me when I was going through it all, which was that there, there really was a consistent theme at all. So regardless of whether he was writing an academic article on originalism or a tribute to a former mentor or a speech to graduating law students, there, there was consistent themes. And, and one of them that I, that struck me at least was through a theme of a deep respect for the individual and a conviction that in our country, in our republic, and as the constitution is written, the individual matters. Um, so in, in, in helping him pick and choose between the materials, it was really made easier by that fact because it became a question not of which piece of writing you know, reflected what he now wanted to say, because they really all did. And so it was a question of making sure there was an appropriate balance between the types of material included. You know, cases are interesting for some, but not all. And he really <laughs> wanted this to be a book that was accessible to lay people. And then a question of which laid forth in the most comprehensive manner, and you know, his thoughts. So while, for instance, many of his speeches might touch on originalism, having one speech that really laid it out all out for the reader um, became important. Yeah, I think this was actually extremely difficult. It's like kind of being a kid in the candy shop and having to pick your favorites. So I think we spent a lot of time talking about which cases to include. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that was one of the hardest parts of writing the entire book. So I love the the chapter on originalism, and there's a great example showing how uh, original public meaning can resolve disputes. So the justice writes, when Hamlet threatens to make a ghost of him that lets me, the reference may seem unclear to a modern reader. But when you look at a contemporaneous dictionary, you quickly discover that let meant hinder. It's clear that Hamlet was threatening to kill anyone who got in his way. Confusion solved by the original public meaning. Could you talk a little bit more about Justice Gorsuch's method of uncovering the original public meaning, uh, whether it's uh, of constitutional provisions or statutory text? Yeah. Uh, so I think that that example shows uh, Shakespeare, of course. Originalism really isn't some boogeyman or some weird uh, idiosyncratic thing that we only apply to constitutional interpretation. It's really how we interpret every text that's out there. And there's lots of sort of examples of texts from this time period, which have different meanings now, but when we're trying to figure out what it means, we, we try and figure out how they would have understood it. George Lepar wrote a really great review of the book, and, and he had another good example in there, uh, another 18th century example, and he talks about uh, the UK's Queen Anne, who reportedly said that St. Paul's, Paul's Cathedral was, quote, artif awful, artificial, and amusing, uh, but those words have very different meanings back then. Uh, she meant that it was awe-inspiring, artistic, and thought-provoking. Um, so I think it's just the way we interpret every text. As far as interpreting the Constitution itself, uh, the Justice sort of talked about this at length in his speech, Originalism in the Constitution, but I'll give you sort of the brief version. Um, it's a little bit art, it's a little bit science. You, of course, begin with the text of the Constitution. What's the ordinary meaning of the terms, the text, of the time it was enacted? 
after all, was, what, uh, was we the people who ratified the Constitution. So if let met hinder, that's what they ratified. They didn't ratify let as permit. Um, we'll look at, you know, dictionary definitions and, and other contemporaneous written sources to determine the meaning of the text. So common sources here, the Federalist Papers, of course, are sort of a very canonical source of, of meaning of the Constitution's provisions, uh, as well as treatises by respected jurists like Cook, Blackstone, Pooley, Kent, and others. Um, you know, when, whenever you're interpreting a constitutional provision, it's, it's almost malpractice not to sort of include all those sources in, in your brief uh, or bench memo or whatever. Uh, you're also looking at opinions that were issued near the time the constitutional provision was enacted, because uh, obviously they were much more aware of the ordinary and original meaning of the constitutional text at the time it was enacted. Uh, you also look at other portions of the Constitution, and you can make structural inferences and, and sort of test your interpretation against the broader structure of the Constitution. Obviously, an interpretation that fits with the rest of the document is to be preferred over one that's contradictory to the rest of the document. You know, and I think a good example of this is the justice's opinion about the void for vagueness doctrine in Debaya, where, among other things, he, he looked at the structural inferences of the Constitution and explains how, without a void for vagueness doctrine, so much of the Constitution's provisions would be pretty much worthless, a, a parchment barrier, in his words, quoting the Federalist Papers, of course. Um, and then also you looked at sort of the history of the provision and how it's been applied over time. The, if the first Congress did something and subsequent Congresses did something similar and there's a long, unbroken practice and no one ever objected on constitutional grounds, that's, that's some evidence at least of the original meaning of the text. You know, and, and none of these sources is dispositive. Uh, you have to sort of figure out which is credible, which is not credible, and, and sort of figure it out, which is why it's judging and requires judgment. Uh, but I think the important point is with originalism, it's judgment and, and not will. These are all sort of value-neutral tools of interpretation. So my, my favorite speech is on courage, where Justice Gorsuch talks about the importance of courage in the legal profession and how young lawyers can cultivate it. Could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so like what I was saying a second ago, you know, just like interpreting the Constitution is part art, part science, uh, being a lawyer is also part art and part science, and I think the on courage speech really goes to sort of the more art portion of the legal profession, um, you know, and he talks a lot about examples of lawyers throughout history who did very courageous things um, because, you know, you're not going to fulfill the Constitution's uh, guarantee of the, uh, the right to counsel for assistance of your defense, for example, if no lawyer is willing to be courageous and defend you. So one of the examples we talked about in the book is uh, – the example of John Adams, of course, future president, and his associate, Josiah Quincy. After the Boston, Boston Massacre, uh, the captain, in the British captain, and his soldiers couldn't get a lawyer for their defense for a while because they were so unpopular, and obviously no, no Boston lawyer wanted to represent these people who were, you know, vilified. Uh, but John Adams sort of stepped up and said, I don't care about the political consequences. I don't care about the personal consequences. Uh, I, uh, everyone's entitled to a lawyer in their defense, and I will step up and defend these people who are really vilified. Um, and I actually kind of like the example of 
his associate, Josiah Quincy, even a little better. Uh, he's, of course, not as well remembered, but his, his own dad actually wrote him a letter during this episode, and he basically said something like, why are you defending these sort of obviously guilty people who did this awful thing? And he said something in reply like, uh, you know, everyone is entitled by the laws of God and man to a uh, lawyer for the assistance of his defense. And I have no hope or I don't really care if people speak well of me, but what I care about is that I step up and do my duty. So, you know, the Sixth Amendment would not really have much fight if, if lawyers were afraid to represent clients. And he talked a lot about other really interesting examples, um, both for lawyers and judges. So he spent some time talking about the DOJ lawyers involved uh, in, you know, the obviously atrocious Korematsu decision where the Solicitor General's office actually misled the Supreme Court in its brief. And he talks about how actually these two sort of more junior lawyers tried to step in and get the brief amended and represent the facts properly before the Supreme Court. Um, and they were unsuccessful, but sometimes being courageous is stepping in there even if you don't think you're going to be successful. So also many of the judges and justices that the justice looks up to and, and wants to share their story are included in the On Courage speech. So Robert Jackson, who is, of course, FDR's Attorney General, Solicitor General, and appointee to the Supreme Court, uh, dissented in a very important administrative law decision during uh, FDR's tenure about whether the agency could sort of create a new rule in an adjudication and apply it to the parties before it retroactively. And, you know, that probably didn't make him very many friends at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but he did that because he thought that's what the law required. Um, and another one that the justice has talked a lot about is Justice Harlan, who dissented in, in the awful Dred Scott decision, which upheld uh, segregation as consistent with equal protection of the laws, which is, of course, dreadfully wrong. Um, Justice Harlan was a lone dissenter in that case. He came from Kentucky. It's, it's very likely that that opinion didn't win him very many friends, but he was courageous and, and nonetheless issued the opinion, even though I'm sure it didn't make him very many friends. And he also talked about perhaps lesser-known judges, but who are no less courageous, like Judge Waring, um, I believe from South Carolina, who issued some decisions uh, ordering the desegregation of, of schools uh, during the Civil Rights era. And there's a really funny story in there about how he was so unpopular in his community that like 30,000 South Carolinians tried to sign an impeachment petition against him. And even lightning struck his neighbor's house, and his neighbor put up a sign that said, Dear God, Judge Waring lives next door. <laughs> uh, but despite that sort of animosity in his community, he still stood firm, because that's, that's what a judge is supposed to do. So I think, you know, this is just, courage is a very important thing to being a, a good lawyer and a good judge. And, and it's very hard. None of us are perfect. You know, I don't think anyone's claiming to be perfect. Um, but it's something that he wanted to sort of instill in, in lawyers and, and judges. So in How Do Judges Think, Justice Gorsuch talks about the institutional constraints and personal characteristics of a good judge that distinguished legal judgment from willful policymaking. Could you talk a bit about what some of these constraints and characteristics uh, good judges should aspire to, aside from courage, of course? <laughs> Sure. Um, so I think aside from courage, um, one that he talks largely about is 
modesty and humility foremost. So if you're a judge, don't think you're a king. Don't think you know best. Don't think anyone elected you to rule society. And I think that pretty much sums it up. So, so to elaborate a bit, um, you know, judges aren't here by our constitution to, to decide what social policies are best for the populace. Um, they're not here to decide whether society has, you know, quote, evolved in one way or another. And that's really up to the people in our democracy. So judges have really one job only, which is to modestly look at the question before them and to decide to the best of their ability what the law says the answer is. Um, so, so really just to sum it up, I think modesty and, of course, as, as David has already spoken of, courage. And I think, um, you know, Janie mentioned earlier one of the justices' favorite sayings be, uh, is learn to disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, that might be... That's definitely top two. The other one that's in the top two is we decide cases, quote, without respect to persons. I believe that's from the judicial oath. And he he drills that in your head from day one of the courtship. And I think that's something that good judges aspire to and, and do a great job in this country. So are there other chapters that you, you really enjoyed working on that we haven't hit on that you want to mention briefly? Um. I think I'm, for me, I have a soft spot for the introduction, the last chapter, because you really get some insight into the type of person the justice is. So you, so you learn you know, where he comes from, what, what his grandmother and grandfather were like, what he cares about, you know, what he's gained and perhaps lost in becoming a justice and the value he, values he espouses. And, and, and for the readers, there are also some great anecdotes that are spanning his, his sort of childhood to his confirmation. And I'd add on top of that, uh, a couple of the chapters that we haven't talked about that I really like are Toward Justice for All, which is about access to justice, something that's a very important issue in this country and one where we're facing challenges. So the justice cares deeply about this issue. He's written multiple papers sort of suggesting potential things to think about, um, whether that's uh, changing our ethical rules to allow non-lawyers to be involved in certain aspects of legal practice to help lower the costs or um, maybe changing the legal education curriculum so that not everyone has to do three years of law school, which of course drives up the cost of legal services um, and other sorts of issues like that. Um, he also talks a lot about sort of the declining jury trial, which he cares deeply about and other access to justice issues. Um, you know, the justice, he wrote a paper with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when he was on the Tenth Circuit. Um, it's not, again, it's not, like just said, originals, it's not like a conservative or liberal issue, but it's an issue that everyone should care about. Um, so I think that's sort of a underrated chapter in the book. And another one that I really like, sort of, it's called Ethics and the Good Life. It sort of tributes to people that justice looks up to, like Justice Kennedy, uh, Justice White, and a 10th Circuit judge named Judge Murrah, as well as uh, a couple commencement speeches where he provides advice to young lawyers, like 10 things to do in your first 10 years after graduation. It's really good advice. It's also one of the funnier speeches in the book, which I really like. Um, and just some of the anecdotes in the Ethics and the Good Life chapter are really interesting. It's one of the more anecdote-heavy chapters, I think. Um, you know, so for example, he talks about how he looks up to Justice White. And Justice White, when the Senate buildings were newly built in Washington, went over there to sort of do a tour. And 
the the guard didn't recognize him, but Justice White was firing off questions left and right about building. He was very curious about it. And at the end of the tour, he asked if he could go see uh, a private section of the building. And the guard said, you know, sorry, it's closed to members of the public. And the justice said, okay, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And left. And the moral of that story is that Justice White is not the type of person who would try and pull rank on a hardworking security guard just because he might be able to. And I think, you know, that also is Justice Gorsuch uh, himself. Uh, he really is just a humble person, average person, and, and really good person. So I thought that chapter was really good to get sort of an insight into what characteristics in other people that justice looks up to. That's great. There, there's also a section in the middle of the book with photos of the justice's family and many of their pets uh, that, I, that I really enjoyed seeing. Uh, well, Jane and David, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I'll tweet out to our listeners, uh, if they haven't already bought the book, you can get it on Amazon or anywhere else where, uh, where you buy books. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. Elizabeth's in the hot seat today. Bring it on. So I thought we'd do oral argument trivia. Got a few interesting questions. Okay. Okay. Number one. What year was the 30-minute oral argument time limit implemented? I know you know this, but I'm explaining to our listeners. Yes. Each side has um, 30 minutes for oral argument unless the justices give them some sort of extended time or unless they have split time with the government or another party. Um, can I give you a decade and see if I get close? Uh, sure. Okay. It's a round number. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with 1950. No, you're in the right century. Century. Okay. (laughs) It was 1970. Um, Oh, wow. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Following that in the early 19th century, about how long did our oral arguments tend to last? Well, there were some that were days, right? Yeah. I don't know what the average would be, but there there were some that were Apparently, more, than a, more than a few days. It was two to three days per side. Per side? Per side. Um, and I have one famous example. So Gibbons versus Ogden, which is, you know, popular, um, not popular, but famous early Commerce Clause case, uh, took five days and advocates spent 20 hours in oral argument. 20 hours. Man, that is a long time to be arguing. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Okay. Um, next, which chief justice limited oral argument to two hours per side? He's an infamous chief justice, probably the most infamous. Oh, Tawny? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And well, so was, he did one good thing. <laughs> yeah. It was 1849. From then on, oral argument was only limited to one hour in 1925. So from 1925 to 1970, it was one hour. So each side had, okay. Yes, per wow. side. Next question. Well, Wait. And they heard so many more cases back then. So think about all the time spent in oral argument, like 150 or 200 cases. Yeah, it's crazy. Two hours a case. Man. Okay. Okay. Next question. Which case had oral argument on a Saturday? Oh. On a Saturday. Oh, uh, was it the Pentagon Papers? It was. It was New York Times versus Sullivan. Okay, final question. What was the longest oral argument in, say, the last century? The longest oral argument? Which case? In the last century. So it would have been before the 1970 rule. Yes, but just before. 
Was it? It was an exception. Was it Miranda? It wasn't, though. Miranda was very long. According to um, a historian interviewed by NPR, it was Brown v. Board of Education. Oh, um, and that it makes was sense. 13 and a quarter hours long. Now, is that combining because the court heard it twice or is that just for the second one? No, I think that was just the second one. Just the second one? Yeah. Okay. But Miranda was definitely up there. It was. Miranda was super long. I don't remember how long. And uh, the first Obamacare case was three days. But, I yes. mean, it was like two hours, was fewer hours per day, yeah. something like that. So not nearly as many hours. Yeah. But there have only been few anomalies that get to break this 30 minute per side. Rule. I wonder how, how long in Brown versus Board of Education, the 13 hours, how it was broken up. Like how long did they have to yeah, sit there? Sure. Those poor justices. <laughs> I know. But they That's survived. Bad. Anyway, that was a good job. Those were Really hard questions. Those were hard, yeah. yeah. And thanks to um, the SCOTUS 101 intern, Abigail Close, she helped out with with the trivia questions this week. Indeed. Not to steal Tiffany's thunder, but Abby helped. Oh, yeah, definitely. Shout out to to Abby. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.